This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 20th, 2022, the polls do not look amazing for Democrats edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Brooklyn, New York. I'm in Slate's Brooklyn studios. So exciting. And I'm not alone. I'm with none other, none other than Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. So nice to see you. John, we miss you. John was going to be with us, but mysteriously, John, who lives in New York, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime with John Dickerson, is in Washington, D.C., I'm so sad not to be with you. This week, GabFest listeners, you'll be sustained through the storms and rains of the following topics. First, how bad are the midterms looking for Democrats? Are the polls dire or not? Then we will talk about the extraordinary Iran protests with Iranian-American writer Roya Hakakian. Then we will talk about a critical fight over trans rights in Arkansas and a really interesting legal case there. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, GapFest listeners, we are going to be in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 2nd, in just two weeks at 7 p.m. at Georgia Tech's First Center for the Arts. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to that show. We loved being in Atlanta last time. We want to continue that trend. So please join us, slate.com slash live to see us at Georgia Tech on Wednesday, November 2nd. John, a couple of months ago, Democrats were cautiously optimistic about the midterm elections. The gas prices were declining. Biden and the Democrats had passed some big bills, the Inflation Reduction Act, notably. Republicans were running some atrocious candidates and the Dobbs decision, which though catastrophic from a policy perspective, seemed to be animating women voters. Now as the election gets closer, the thing that generally happens in a lot of elections, uh, the fundamentals are asserting themselves. Most voters are unhappy with Biden and by extension with Democrats. The Dobbs enthusiasm seems to be waning. What's happening? What's happening now? So gravity is reasserting itself. It It's turning out to be, in a funny way, and Matt Iglesias, I think, wrote about this on Thursday morning. If Democrats, let's say Democrats hold the Senate in their bare, bare majority uh, or the and, and only lose eight seats. So Republicans need to take six to take the House. So that would be control of the House would go to Republicans, and that would be a huge uh, political um, earthquake. But historically speaking, Democrats, if they only lost, say, eight seats, would have lost far fewer seats than the in-party of the White House loses uh, in the post-World War II era and in when a president of that party's approval rating is below 50%. Those you know, usually they would, you would, history would tell you they'd expect to lose anywhere between, say, 25 and 35 seats. So in that context, they would outperform historical expectations. It would still be a political earthquake. Why do I say all of that? Because it reminds us that the, that the historical weight is heavy on the party that controls the White House. The policy weight is very heavy, which is when you ask people to say what issues they care about, the, the issues that they say they care about are the economy and inflation. And on those issues, depending on what poll you look at, the Republican, the generic Republican candidate has a 20 to 30 point advantage over the generic Democratic candidate. So 
those are all kind of regular gravitational forces. Um, then you have the fact that the out party is often more frustrated than the in party and is therefore more enthusiastic, although in a lot of polls, it shows that the enthusiasm numbers are, are the same, which is, again, a way in which Democrats are pushing against some traditional historical trends. What's happened recently is in the generic ballot, particularly in the New York Times poll, in the generic ballot, which is used as a proxy to understand how the parties will do in the House races, Democrats are ahead in the generic ballot. Um uh, which is to say, when you ask, would you vote for a generic Republican or a generic Democrat? They People picked the generic Democrat, but now in the most recent version of that poll, they have picked, um, they are picking the generic Republican. So that's another one of those things that's um, that's turned. And then finally, I would just point out that, as you mentioned, the, the abortion enthusiasm among women post-Dobbs um, appears to have waned. It is not um, It is not picked in the top tier of things that voters say they care about, nowhere near as much as the economy and inflation. And also then in the Times poll, there was some evidence that independent women, sample size is a little small. The sample size was 233 independents in that poll. And then I think, I didn't see what the women was, but if you assume that women are half of that, it's, yeah, it's around 100 But independent women in September favored Democrats by 14 points. Now independent women back Republicans by 18 points. Republicans had entirely have entirely erased the 11 point edge for Democrats among women in the last month. Um, So uh, those are all some of the factors for why this gravity is returning. Emily, that New York Times poll also found that Americans are concerned about the erosion of democracy but they don't seem to be voting on it. So what what do you make of the fact that people are not voting on the erosion of democracy and and women may not be voting on Dobbs and reproductive rights? So, I mean, I think one way to think about this is the difference between um, voting for pocketbook issues that are pressing right now. I mean, people are really feeling the bite of inflation, and that really is widely felt versus these kind of more long-term concerns that, you know, to me feel extremely pressing, but I think to a lot of people feel abstract, right? If you are seeing your paycheck dwindle and you can't buy things you want to buy or you're worried about your economic security in the medium run, maybe that feels like more of a problem than the idea that um, somebody, probably somebody else, might have more trouble um, controlling their reproductive future, uh, or even that the democracy is at stake because it's not at stake right this second, like we're going to vote. So, you know, in this immediate election, the idea that this one means that um, you're protecting future elections and the kind of whole way of life in the United States, I think maybe people feel like that's kind of overblown and that you have to show them more direct evidence of a threat in order for them to vote on it. The problem, of course, being that if the direct threat is really looming, it may be too late. It it is amazing to me how bad inflation is as a political headwind. It is. We haven't because it makes sense, though, because everybody feels it. Right. Like unemployment actually affects a tiny percentage of people. I feel like I mean, significant for those people, but relatively small. I feel like we've talked about this before, but inflation is for everyone. We all feel it. Yeah, we all feel it. And and, 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 and it turns out and actually Matt Iglesias made this point, I think, in in the piece that John was referring to a second ago, but that it it particularly bites at people in suburbs and and far ring suburbs that they drive a lot and so those are people who had 
been trending Democratic because of Trump. Women especially have been trending Democratic because of Trump. And I think there's a lot of skepticism and irritation because when gas is expensive, um, life is a lot more expensive in places like that. And if you live a life that's fairly insulated from those price swings, like your life is more urban or you have an electric car, or you bike a lot or whatever, it's easy to be kind of high and mighty that this stuff shouldn't matter to people if you're a liberal and you feel like there's this, you know, screaming emergency going on. But, you know, people's sense of what they can afford and how they feel about their economic security is important to them. Yeah, and it's and it's obviously not just hitting gas; it's food and rent and all those other those other things. Can't help that the headlines from Britain are so bad, right? The idea that bread is super expensive there. I know that we don't live in the United Kingdom, but I just feel like that has to have some sense. And these trends do tend to, you know, go together as well. What I'm interested in, and which I haven't really been able to tease out of the polls as much as I'd like, is just in terms of benchmarking voter behavior. People clearly say Biden isn't doing enough about inflation. Um, but in the last CBS Battleground Tracker poll, there was some number of people who who said, we understand that this is not the result of Biden administration policies. But in, when people say they are unhappy about and prefer the Democrats to the, I'm sorry, prefer the Republicans to the Democrats on handling the issue of the economy, is it that they, A, blame Biden, or is it, B, that they uh, think, you know, Biden had a tough hand, but Republicans could handle it better. Or is it some combination? My ex expectation is it's some combination of the two. But for those expecting improvement post-election, um, uh, with for even if Republicans control the House and Senate on the economy, um, I think they're in for a real disappointment because there's not a lot that is going to be done through fiscal policy to improve the economic situation if, if Republicans control uh, the House and Senate. Right. Although in terms of Republican politics, they probably don't care that much because everyone fights as though the White House is the only thing that matters. And Biden will take the blame if the economy doesn't perk. The One of the things that, that uh, I found really interesting in some of the polling this week, which I'm, I'd love your thoughts on, is that our generation, Gen Xers, have swung really significantly toward the GOP. Here's the thing that's goofy about that. And I asked our elections and um, surveys director, Anthony Salvanto, about this. There's a funky way in which that polling uh, breaks out the age cohort. So it, it, it pulls in a whole bunch of boomers and near boomers in that age category. So when Pew, um, which does a more finer look at it, it looks like Gen X is actually... So the, those who grew up with Clinton and Obama... Um, are uh, are sort of more liberal and more or or vote for the pick the Democrat over the Republican. It's the boomers and people either our age or a couple of years older who pick the Republican. So it's so Gen X is basically you would expect it. The oldest of Gen X vote like boomers. The younger of Gen X vote like the generation after it. I have this creeping fear that our generation is just going to go down as like 
sucking terribly. Like, I don't know. You think that's not fair? But no, I would just Does bring it. Why do you think? Well, because, Ted, Ted Cru- because we have Ted Cruz. There are that's a number our of people most prominent Gen Xer. Yeah. Also, I just feel like we're not really leading. We've always been really anxious and kind of cramped in our aspirations for life. I don't know. What have we done? I haven't really thought this okay. through, and I kind of don't believe I, in generations, but I, I'm concerned well, about it. our us. generation actually is tremendous if you think about what we've accomplished in business and culture. Mm. If you think about like all of the the Google people, oh the, great, I the knew it. We were going to Bezos. Yeah. I'm not so convinced. Uh, about Musk Bezos. is our generation. Uh-huh. Yeah, awesome. Okay, um, yeah, you're making my point for me. Our accomplishments are tech world, which I'm not, not convinced you know has the, made the world better. And but Bezos is not. He's 64, and Gen X starts at 64. Bezos is 64? Can't even claim Amazon, which at least has made consumption Bezos easier. Bezos is that old. God. He's that old, but the thing is, he looks like he he the, the whatever the oil painting is in his attic, um, because <laughs> he looks younger and younger as he gets older. Can I say one other? Can I uh, swerve the car back into the road? Which is, um, we we should stop for a moment and think about the Senate because what's despite all the things we've talked about, there is a different story in the Senate. Traditionally, the Senate has been a little more impervious to national trends. Although in this case, of course, voters in our recent poll about Nevada, for example, eight in 10 of the voters on both sides uh, say that their vote is um, one of the things that is, is in mind is control of the Senate. So that tends to nationalize an election. But often or more often than in the House, you have senators who can get out from under national trends. And this in this election in particular, you have these um First of all, all Democrats are not operating on Republican turf. You know, they're mostly operating on Biden turf where there are close races. And um, also you have these, you know, troubled Republican candidates. Um, so you could, that's why the polls um, and everything we've talked about beforehand might not apply in terms of Democrats uh, retaining control of the Senate. Yeah, it is. You do stop and think like if the Republicans had just nominated some reasonable people in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in New Hampshire, Arizona. in Arizona, they would, it would just, we would not even be having any kind of conversation right now. Right. It's like they gave themselves a big handicap, but it may not in the end be enough to sink them. As you know, GabFest listeners, we do bonus segments for Slate Plus members every week here on the GabFest. And this week we're going to talk about Yay! That's how I think you pronounce it. The artist formerly known as Kanye West, who says he's buying the right-wing sewer rat Twitter knockoff site uh, Parlor. We will attempt to make sense of this circus. We are joined by Roya Hakakian. Roya is the author of A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and Curious. She is a poet and a journalist, and she has been one of the most eloquent American voices about the Masa Amini protests that have been roiling Iran. So, Roya, we have actually not talked about this on the GabFest, so can you... Uh, Except for I recommended an interview okay. with you. <laughs> but Okay, but all right. Can you begin by situating us? What are the protests that have uh, have so roiled Iran for the past month? What caused them? What do the protesters seek? And how has the Iranian government responded to them? The last time I spoke about this, I compared it to the George Floyd protests in the United States. And the reason I like that comparison with, despite all of its inaccuracies, is that if George Floyd weren't 
himself weren't an ordinary American, if he were a political activist or, or anyone else, perhaps we would not have had as much sympathy as we did, um, given you know, who he was. So I think part of what uh, draws people uh, to the case of Mahsa Amini is that she was an everyday woman, uh, that every ordinary Iranian who you know, may be entirely apolitical felt so strongly about the injustice that she experienced. And she was just coming for a few days to visit the big city, be with relatives and go back home. Um, she has never been political. So she's not in Tehran to challenge the status quo. She's not in Tehran to uh, you know, take off her hijab and challenge the morality police. Um, so she's in Tehran just, you know, as a, as a tourist, you know, minding her own business. Now in, in a lot of the news accounts, we hear that her hijab had slipped off. Her headscarf, uh, was not where it was supposed to be. Um, a friend of mine who's a Kurdish journalist had spoken to her family and says that that is not the case. Her hijab was on. Um, what had happened was that the buttons, the bottom buttons of her Islamic uniform, which is sort of this baggy raincoat-like uniform that you have to put on as a woman in Iran to cover the curves of your body, had uh, been left open. And that is what the morality police picked on. So, you know, if she were a feminist activist, uh, like so many that we have seen in the past few years, we would say, oh, you know, she took off her job because she was trying to uh, challenge the system, but she wasn't. And I think the fact that she was um, just a, you know, regular girl, like anybody else's sister um, or daughter, and still, uh, despite all that she had done to abide by the laws, uh, she got into uh, this mess is what enraged everyone. One of the amazing things about these protests is I understand people are shouting woman, life, liberty, um, with some notion that these um, frustration about the um, conditions that women live under are intertwined into the other problems with civil liberties and freedoms and basic rights in Iran. Why is that happening? Like, obviously, there's this groundswell of support um, People are protesting in numbers that we haven't seen in years. And is it possible that there is enough frustration about women's issues to seed a, you know, a revolution here? Uh, it is a revolution. I mean, in every possible way, uh, this is the closest thing I have ever seen to the events that I personally witnessed as a kid in Iran in 1979. This is a revolution. I think... Um, there are two qualities that turn this into a revolution. One is that the regime uh, has not been able to curb them, to send people home. And the other is that the protesters have said and have shown that there is nothing other than the complete overthrow of the regime that will satisfy them. So, you know, people compare this to what happened in Iran in 2009. In 2009, during what was called the Green Revolution, um, people came to the streets saying, where is my vote? 
That is not what anybody's saying now. That in 2009 was a conversation with the system. They, are, they were saying, you know, we are, we have a demand. We believe that our elections were rigged and we want you to do the right thing by us. This is not what the public is demanding at the moment. They're saying uh, we want nothing other than the supreme leader, uh, all the system being entirely removed from power. Roya, that seems to be a request that's that the the regime won't wouldn't allow such a request. I mean that, and we've seen lots of violence as a result. But what you just said struck me as as a, a demand that that's existential for the regime, and therefore it just it it will have to get put down violently. Do you see any other option? I don't hear and do not see any sign of compromise. I think. In, in some ways, if they were smart, they should have compromised in 2009. That was a missed opportunity because right now, no reformist, no figure from, you know, that whole bygone possibility of, you know, what if we could introduce some, uh, you know, some moderate from within the regime to appease the protesters. That could have happened in 2009. Right now, I am seeing something I have never seen. People are defacing the images of Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Iranian of Iran's Islamic Republic. That had never happened at any point in in any of the previous demonstrations. So when when the demonstra- demonstrators go as far as they have, it means that you know people are done uh, with this entire ideology. Where you met with. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and what I wonder what tools you think the United States has to help the protesters if if we want to deploy them. What what could we actually do that might have an impact? And do you think we're deploying them? No, we're not deploying them. And you know, I'm I'm one of those odd Iranians. Um, I'm I'm very optimistic. I don't go to meet with the Secretary of State thinking that these people want to screw us. I was there thinking, oh, look, you know, they're really trying to make conversation and understand this. And and I, I really do think um, Secretary Blinken and others who were at that meeting are trying to figure this out. I think, however, the problem is that for the last 20 years, everybody in Europe and in the United States and in our country the Democrats especially, have been so wedded to the idea of uh, JCPOA, to, you know, to the idea of nuclear negotiations. And, you know, to say, forget about nuclear negotiations, and by the way, you know, the people want to overthrow the regime is just something that I think nobody is psychologically and intellectually ready for. And I think that unreadiness is what struck me the most. Uh, in Washington, because I also met with, you know, some members of the Senate um, when I gave a testimony uh, at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I don't see that our administration at any level has been ready for this. But I think if they come together and if they can kind of say, okay, you know, we had a different, we had a plan A, but obviously plan A is not working so let's switch to plan B. If they show intellectual agility, then I think there's, there are, there's a whole host of things they can, 
they can possibly do. And I can enumerate them. You know, I think they can um, work with the European allies. They can withdraw ambassadors. They can, using the fact that Iran is uh, sending drones to Ukraine, uh, bear, you know, uh, bear on Iran in, in a different, under completely uh, different uh, international conventions that they, are, they have been using thus far um, to really squeeze the regime. Roya Hakakian, thanks for coming on the GabFest. Thank you for having me on. Whoa. As we were finishing that segment, comes news that Liz Truss has resigned. That is amazing. From and, being prime minister of Britain. Right. And Boris Johnson may be in the competition to replace her, which would be incredible. <sighs> This week saw the start of a fascinating and critical trial that will probably have a really large impact on the right of transgender children and their parents to seek medical care. Arkansas in 2021 passed a law barring doctors in that state from providing any gender-affirming care, including hormone treatment, puberty blockers, and surgery to children in Arkansas, and also barring doctors from referring patients to doctors in other jurisdictions. And now for Patients and two doctors, supported by the ACLU, have challenged this law as unconstitutional um, for discriminating against transgender kids and intruding on parents' rights and doctors' free speech rights. And um, it's really interesting. So, Emily, I know you've covered this issue a ton. Um, What do you – why is this trial important? I mean, I think – well, first of all, it's extremely important for transgender teenagers and kids in Arkansas. There are um, almost 250 patients at the medical center program that's um, in the spotlight here. So in some ways, that's a small number, but it's a number that's very important to the people who are directly affected. And then I think what this trial suggests to me so far is the utter poisonous nature of having politics intrude into medical decisions right now. I mean, it is just terrible to hear about kids who could lose treatment that for them is, you know, life altering and life critical. And the idea that the state is going to ban treatment, um, you know, having reported on this, I don't know anyone who works in this area who thinks that's a good idea. Nobody. That doesn't mean there aren't questions about um, exactly how treatment should work and whether in some um, in some clinics in the U.S. the um, guidelines that uh, professional organizations have put forward are properly followed. But this place in particular in Arkansas, it's called Gender Spectrum, seems to be extremely responsible um, in the way that it proceeds. And so there's just this utter um, mismatch here between potential harm and what the state is doing. And it just this is not what the state should be in the business of getting into the middle of interfering in these medical decisions. Can you back up, Emily, and explain why the state thinks it has a a role here and whether in its claims about its role um, setting regulations for medical care, it's using something similar to, or not similar at all, to what they did in Texas on abortion, which is using the power over medical regulations to to reach beyond that to, to make sort of larger cultural policy. Yeah, I mean, I think the similarity is that you have the state interfering for what seem to be cynical political reasons um, 
in what should be a kind of scientific process of deciding what the rules and regulations and standards should be for providing care. So there is a similarity there, and it does feel like, um, you know, right-wing legislators have seized on this because they think it sounds scary and um, it's a way of courting their supporters. And um, it has a really alienating effect. I mean, some of the testimony this week, uh, Dr. Michelle Hutchison, who um, worked at Gender Spectrum for a few years, she was talking about how much anxiety levels among kids have gone up um, at the clinic where this treatment is being offered. And there have been some concerns about um, kids threatening suicide. And you can really imagine, first of all, there's just the direct impact of being afraid that your own life, your care is going to be taken from you, not for reasons that have any kind of medical or scientific basis, but because some politicians decided that you shouldn't have it. And then also just the stigma of this is so um, bad for kids to be made to feel that this thing that they need is something that the state thinks is, you know, harmful and terrible. Um, it just really does a lot of damage, these kinds of laws. And and yeah, in that sense, there is a parallel with Texas. And I know this doesn't exactly apply, but what what are the limits on when parents can not provide or provide medical care to their children? Like, is there any limit? Could it, Can a parent deny a child cancer treatment, like a 16-year-old? Can they say, you you cannot get this radiation? We don't think you should get this radiation. I think that a, a child in that sort of circumstance might, if they could figure out how to voice their concerns and that maybe that would happen for their medical providers, then you might have a court appoint a guardian for the kids, some way to have to adjudicate whether this medically necessary care was being denied. But what's happening here is the opposite. These are kids whose parents have consented right. to the treatment. And right. so that's another way in which you're just interfering in the family dynamic, right? Um, yeah. I mean, to me, what's sort of especially... I think cruel here is that to the extent there's a scientific debate about, you know, why the number of kids seeking care is rising and why many more teenagers are identifying as transgender, it is mostly concentrated in very progressive communities, right? It's like people I know, people you guys know. Um, it's in blue parts of the country. This is a very red part of the country in which kids are having to really fight, right? They're having to get past a lot of stigma and shame in a lot of circumstances to seek this care to begin with. Emily, there are also cases uh, somewhat similar in um, Alabama and Texas where judges have stepped in the way of local efforts to um, impose these kinds of regulations. Do you think that this decision, which is the first case, I guess, at this level of its kind, um, will have effects in those other places? Or do each one of these instances have to be um, taken through the courts as they are? I mean, the technical answer is that Arkansas is in a different part of the federal court system than Texas and Alabama. It's uh, under the auspices of the Eighth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. And so that's like a separate track from um, the federal courts in Texas and Alabama. However, I think a trial like this is really important for airing the evidence. And so I think... What you get from a trial like this is an airing of the evidence on both sides and a full record. It's unlikely that Texas and Alabama are going to produce a different record. 
Um, and so the decisions of the courts um, aren't binding in those other states. But the idea that we've had judges look at these facts, that these premises, um, that this law is being tested, and that there's a factual record is very, very important. I wonder, do you think we're going to be able to bring contemplation and patience back to this incredibly important and you know existential issue for so many people? Or is it, the politics are just so bad and so poisonous it's in such effect an effective culture war issue for the right that that we just can't in the short term, I feel really pessimistic about it because it is this um, cultural weapon for the right mostly and I think um, in the longer run we're gonna know more we're gonna have more research from Europe if from nowhere else and that will give people a stronger sense of how to proceed but in the short run this does just seem like you know, a really sad kind of political disaster to me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, Emily, I we're not gonna have a cocktail because it's lunchtime, but maybe we'll 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 have a, a pre unboozy cocktail. Martini lunch we can have a three at, martini at lunch at eleven o'clock in the morning. You have such well, limited ambitions. All right, fine. What will you be chattering to me about when we have a three martini lunch in a few minutes? I will be chattering about Nora Ephron's salad dressing recipe, which is back in the news because of the gossipy story about Olivia Wilde, uh, movie director, and Harry Styles' um, pop star, who uh, supposedly maybe had an affair. There was some accusation by a nanny in the Daily Mail and a piece that was taken down that wild made salad dressing um, or made some salad with dressing for Styles, And this is part of why Wilde's marriage broke up. I have no idea whether that is the case and I should not be repeating it, but it is the setup for Olivia Wilde having posted not only Nora Ephron's um, salad dressing recipe, but the page from Nora Ephron's famous book, Heartburn, about her own divorce in which this salad dressing recipe plays an important role. So I am a huge Nora Ephron fan. I think that I made this salad dressing even before I learned about Nora Ephron, but I've been doing it wrong. I kind of knew this already. I put too much vinegar in this. My husband would be the first to tell you. I'm very dependent on the salad dressing recipe. I do sometimes get a little bit bored of it. So I've been trying lately to make... So I really like making homemade salad dressing, but it cannot have more than like four ingredients in it. I am sorry. That is my limit. And it also cannot involve any machines. I have to be able to do it by shaking a jar, basically. So lately, I've been trying to make lemon tahini dressing. I have not really found one, a recipe that I like. Same with green goddess dressing. So, GapFest listeners, if you have, let's say, um, four or five ingredients, fewer is fine. Four. David says four I got is one perfect. for you. Okay, great. David, are you going to give us yours? Because I'm hoping that we will also yeah. get people to send them. But I olive oil, uh, shallot, Dijon mustard, rice vinegar. Okay, that's close because it still has mustard in it to Nora Ephron's, but it's a little different. I want a few recipes that don't have Dijon mustard in them. That's my big ask. Anyway, send us your salad dressing recipes. John, what's your chatter? I would like to respond. I would like to respond first to the gentlelady from New Haven. First, I'm. I, I didn't. Re- I, I, you all must eat a lot of salads. Um, I think we just eat boring, like arugula, which is just uh, oil, lemon, and some salt. So I feel... I think the 
that Anne is going to be insulted. No, I feel this. like I have had dinner at your house with excellent salad. Well, no, it's and I think no, 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 no. It's 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 the way I feel about your um your wide variety of television watching is like I I feel like we watch like one thing and then that's I don't know. I'm I'm thinking we need to to jazz up our salad game. So I'm um my chatter is about uh, two things. One. Um, uh, this Sunday morning, I'll have a piece on Sunday morning. I interviewed Bob Woodward, who has released all eight hours of his interviews with Donald Trump. Um, people are probably to, had for their torture, had their <laughs> fill of Donald Trump, as da- as David's interjection just adequately represented. And I couldn't agree more. Um, but I think two things are interesting. One, there is something about listening to Trump in this context, which is it's a it's. You get a sense of him. You can listen to him and hear and understand why people are captive um, to him. Lindsey Graham is in some of the instances. You hear what Lindsey Graham is like around Donald Trump, which I think is interesting relative to um, some people's views of the modern political movement. I think it's fascinating to hear Trump talk about these Kim Jong-un letters and um, the photographs he has with him when you hear him talk at length and depth and about getting these pictures so that Woodward can see them, the 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 depth of um, attention and focus on the letters and pictures, juxtaposed with the lack of depth and focus or an attention to other matters that are obviously far more grave. It's just got all kinds of stuff going on in it. It was um uh it's 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 fascinating also obviously if you're interested in the presidency much of these conversations are woodward trying to get trump to engage with any of the obligations of the office as they're traditionally understood um and uh anyway so the other thing though is the tampa bay um times published footage body cam footage of florida voters being arrested as a part of the um governor DeSantis's crackdown on uh on, I guess, voter fraud as a part of his um, uh, his voter fraud unit, um, and the videos are uh, are they're chilling. They're they're sad. The, the 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 cops making the arrests are 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 you know uh, they they feel embarrassed. You can hear it in their voice and the way they talk. The the citizens of Florida are totally bewildered. And Emily, you'll check me if I'm wrong, but. In 2018, Florida passed a referendum, I think by 65% of the vote that said felons could vote. There is, There are certain kinds of felons, as I understand it, who can't, and that's where this is. So it's basically these, um, these citizens of Florida were told in some instances at the DMV that they could vote, that, that, that because of this referendum and the legislation that, that um, came after it, or I guess the statute, sorry, that came after it, that they could vote, it was okay. And so it's a misunderstanding and you see the bewilderment in their faces and and the power of the state is there. And we're talking about, I think in the end, like it was 19 arrests or something, um, more proof that um, that you have to really work hard to find voter fraud and that it's not the result, as we've long known forever, this is like saying the moon is not made of cheese, but the organizing principle of, of one of our two political parties is that widespread fraud exists. And so we have to engage with the idea that the moon is not made of cheese. And this is more proof that, um, you know, in order to find voter fraud, you, it, it, it has to be done in this, in this way that is, comes into high relief in these videos. Yeah, it's really, really deeply upsetting. 
my chatter is not deeply upsetting. I'm sorry to say. My chatter is about a great lottery scam story. I am a sucker for a lottery scam story. And The Atlantic has a doozy this week by Jeff Mache. It is about Victor Jonia, who is a real estate broker in Michigan who won tens of millions of dollars in the Michigan State Lottery over years by buying huge numbers of tickets in a daily uh, drawing for four numbers, a four-number drawing that they did every day. And you would win, I think, up to $5,000 per correct ticket, but he would buy hundreds of tickets uh, and certain numbers. And and over time, he believed he had cracked the system and he actually won enormous amounts of money, enough that Michigan ended up changing how people bought tickets. So Jonia couldn't do his, his mass purchases in quite the same way. The point of the piece is like, did this guy actually figure something out in the lottery? Was he a savant or was he a crook or was he a sucker? And it's just an amazing story about like someone's someone's apparent extraordinary good luck, but was it good luck or something else going on? So check it out in the Atlantic. Listeners, you also have great chatters. In fact, I almost did this as my own chatter this week uh, because I liked it so much because I personally spent a lot of my childhood doing the activity that this chatter involves. So Laura Hagan, take it away. I'm Laura from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and my chatter comes from a video tweeted by the Nerdist about the Dutch Domino team. The team set the amateur record at the World Domino Collective in August. Their course took two weeks to assemble and required 750,000 dominoes. What they built is amazing in its creativity and engineering. It includes castles and skyscrapers, roller coasters, and even 3D structures. The video is 17 minutes long, but it's well worth your time. You'll be mesmerized in suspense, and maybe stressed out like I was, all at the same time. There's also a behind-the-scenes video that shows the team's process, their accidents, and the immense amount of teamwork and sweat equity that went into the project. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I did. I, I cannot wait to watch I that. I watched 17 full minutes and the behind-the-scenes video. Uh, you, If you have a, a chatter, please tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest or email us at gabfest at slate.com. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Researchers Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Merritt Jacob had a special role this week because we're in Brooklyn and Merritt is, Thank is, you, Merit. is here engineering us. It's so nice to see Merritt again. Haven't seen him in two plus years. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet and chatter to us there. And come to our live show in Atlanta. Slate.com slash GabFest Live on Wednesday, November 2nd for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz. Talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Uh, Ye says he is buying Parlor, which is the right-wing cesspool Twitter knockoff. This follows several weeks of erratic anti-Semitic behavior by the rap star icon, in which he was frozen out of Instagram and Twitter for anti-Semitic bile, annoyed lots of people by wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt to a fashion show, gave a bizarre interview to Tucker Carlson, and generally became a kind of like right-wing darling for the moment. 
so it is not unusual for people to get very rich and to have the troublesome aspects of their personality come to the fore. Um, so it's kind of a natural progression for him. He's been getting more and more erratic and conspiratorial as he's gotten richer and more famous. And he's always been a kind of erratic and conspiratorial person, but there's more of it. So I don't know where, how to, where to start this. It's a, it, John, John's description was this is a clown car, I think, when we – I don't know. No, I said it was a carny show. A carny show, a carny show, yeah. Um, what is worth talking about here? Well, here, I'll, I'll, t- I'll make it as boring as possible. <laughs> I mean, so I guess – I mean, what's worth talking about is is like, what's the, does your freedom of speech um, guarantee you a freedom of, of reach? So you can say whatever you want, but does a company have to be obligated to let you say it? And when people say out- outrageous, objectionable, and dangerous things, there's no obligation for a private company to um, let them do it. And so people like Kanye and President Trump, former President Trump, and others try to go build a market for their crazy things. And that was really successful in politics with talk radio and with mainstream conservative media, which was an antidote to, um, or a way to get around what they correctly perceived as a liberal dominance in mainstream media. Um, So... The problem is, though, nobody's signing up. And so it just becomes, they create hotbeds of crazy. Yeah, I mean, Parler is this completely unsuccessful venture. It's raised a ton of money, but has very few active users and just appears to be, to repeat, a cesspool, a tar pit, a, a kind of hellscape, um, which no one wants to be part of. Well, a virulent group wants to be part of, but it's a pretty small Right. Which is sort of heartening in its own way. So, I mean, there's two things with gay. One is that I feel like I'm watching someone with mental illness. Yes. And that's really, I don't think we should be, it's like just really, that's not good to be watching that up close. I mean, this is like truly a problem with a word I generally don't like, platforming, right? Why is this person... um, getting a platform even on a show like Tucker Carlson's show when he's clearly like yeah you're just watching some break happening and then the second thing is some of the anti-semitic things he is saying are really bad it is not good to have this be back in the discourse and I mean Trump has been playing into it too in the last week or so by talking about how Jews should get their act together and support him the way he thinks Jews in Israel support him and he could be prime minister he'd run for prime minister he'd win yeah, I'm not Israel. I'm not saying he's I'm yes, he is popular in Israel, but telling American Jews they need to get their act together. Right. We should not this is not we don't want to I I just do not think that. I mean, obviously Trump can say whatever he wants and it's revealing and people can learn from it, but the giant platform that Ye has been getting for these virulent anti-Semitic attacks is bad. Why do you think the right is so happy to adopt him as one of their own, even though he is saying these things which are truly despicable. It's it, it's it's the the owning the libs is more important than the fact that he's a he's a mentally ill person who has disgusting views. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, he's an incredibly talented entertainer at other moments. And his and I think for the right, 
Yay wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt is just worth all the other trouble, right? Because they just seem to take so much delicious joy in that. Right. I am never cease to be amazed, I don't know why, of the sense of victimhood and and sense of victimization and powerlessness that extremely rich, extremely powerful people have and this that they're constantly feeling like they're under siege and under threat and 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 they're they have fans who who fan that and and his his behaving that way I find it's so unappealing in Trump it's so unappealing in Elon Musk it's so unappealing in in Yay and it just does seem like this this trait of a certain class of narcissistic powerful person have you guys ever been on Parlor I've never been on Parlor or Gab I've or... read a lot of Parlor for reporting stuff it's really fun fun no, you're being I'm sarcastic yes. oh, okay. It was months ago. I saw the stat that only 6% of Americans have used one of these alternative right-wing platforms. Which also is, heartening. Which is also heartening. But then why are they so powerful? Why, why, is, why are the 6% of people who hold shithead views so powerful in American life? Well, I don't know. Are they? I mean, maybe. Yes. The Republican Party is in their thrall. Oh, hmm. Well, I don't think it's just the 6% of people, right? That's like the online virulent people. There are more of them than are super online. Hmm. I guess that's right. All right. Bye, Slate Plus.